Hey everyone, and welcome to the Fidesz Club. This is episode 84, we're in March 2017, and in this special, we're going to be talking about Zimbabwe. Hello everyone and welcome to the Fidesz Club. My name is Patrick Beja and this is a special episode. Uh, usually what we do is that we get different people from different countries to talk about the world events. Uh, but in special episodes, we get one or two people from one specific uh, area of interest or, or country and we talk about that country specifically. Um, and today we're going to do that about uh, Zimbabwe. Uh, and before we launch into uh, the, the conversation itself, I just want to mention that we're uh, going to be focusing on the daily life in Zimbabwe and going to uh, 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 not talk about all of the uh, political aspects of it, which are very pecu peculiar, but we're really going to talk about how life is in Zimbabwe and try to get you an idea of what happens, uh, you know, to how people go about uh, their business on a daily basis. And uh, hopefully you haven't heard about this a lot, so it will bring you a little bit of uh, awareness. I know that certainly for me, that's the case. So uh, let me welcome to the show uh, first, Bongai. Uh, I, as I always say, I hope I'm not uh, mispronouncing your name, but welcome to the show, Bongai. Thank you, Patrick. So you are native of Zimbabwe. You've been living there for a long time, and you're a, uh, as you described it, a businessman. Yeah, um, wasn't born in Zimbabwe. My parents lived in Zambia at the time. Uh, my father was declared persona non grata, so right. moved back when I was one. But I've been here pretty much my whole life. Okay, and uh, so you're a businessman. You you used to do a little bit of uh, radio as well. And um, yeah, yeah. Well, radio. I used to host a, a radio show on Star FM, which is uh, Zimbabwe's biggest urban radio station. And I also used to host a show called The Bottom Line, which is a business radio show with different guests coming on, uh, representing different sectors of the economy. Uh, occasionally, getting representatives from government as well, just uh, giving insight on on things that are going on in and around the country. And my business is uh, mainly in hospitality, uh, casual dining, and bars. All right, cool. Thank you very much. Uh, and we also have Bruce, um, who... Uh, I, so you you were born in Zimbabwe, actually, but you're uh, originally European, and now you're back in uh, Ireland, right? Uh, Scotland at the moment. So Same thing. Really it's like Scotland. the countries around, you know, in the UK, it's it's fine. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. Like you're, you're from Spain, Patrick. Yeah, um, basically. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I've, I was I was born in Zimbabwe to uh, parents who were from um, from from Europe. Um, mother was Italian and dad was English, but they were. I've often say they were more more uh, Zimbabwean than I was because they lived there for longer <laughs> than I did. Um, um, but currently live in Scotland with with uh, wife and kids. Uh, working for working for a very exciting job in the council, which which we won't go into details. 
<laughs> it sounds fascinating. Um, but all right, so you did live uh, for a couple of decades in, in Zimbabwe, and I think you tried to go back, but you couldn't find work, so um, is my understanding. So you have a deep-seated uh, love for, for the country, um, is my understanding. And Yeah, sorry, Patrick. Yeah, Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe will always be my spiritual home. Um, I, I was born there. I left when I was 23 uh, and then went back for a couple of years a few years ago and just just couldn't find the work and um mm. well yeah. with a family i'm sure it must be a little yeah. bit difficult I, d i do go go back every couple of years on holiday to to, to see my family so um right you know I, i love the country and i love the people um, and so actually bongai and bruce you've known each other uh forever um you're uh your friends and you've known each other since the your childhood It's probably going on, what, 34 years now, Bruce? I would say that. We met in, I think it was the first day in junior school. We went to the same junior school together. Um, and my mum always loved the story that uh, on the first day I've, I tripped over something and, and Bongai was the only guy to uh, to come over and offer to pick me up or help me up. <laughs> so she was, uh, um, And that was our first day in case of, A case of us fat kids having to hang out together, mate. <laughs> yes, yeah, we're both we're both substantial people. Uh, Bongai's <laughs> taken advantage of it recently. He started the gym, but uh, I've I've kind of let myself go. <laughs> all right, well, so let's first first of all, I know as I joked about when we before we started recording, I know nothing about Zimbabwe. Uh, I'm basically the biggest Zimbabwe noob that you'll ever find. I hope I don't make too much of a uh, fool of myself. I already started, you know, by equating Scotland with Ireland, but I'm going to try and not to do that too much in uh, the next few uh, couple of minutes. But um, for me, Zimbabwe is basically, yeah, it's that country. It's a country in Africa, right? The big, like, Africa is one thing and Zimbabwe is a part of it. And that's my extent, the extent of my knowledge of Zimbabwe. So I apologize to basically everyone in the world for being an idiot. Um, but let's let's start with that i'm actually intrigued by uh your you know your first days of school how how do that how does that go in zimbabwe uh maybe bonga you know if if you ask me i have a very uh caricatural image of zimbabwe i'm not even sure you know if we go to the extreme i'm like oh so it's like you have to walk Uh, 20 miles uh, to go to the school in like a village where that doesn't have electricity or water like obviously you know i don't know where you were but i'm guessing that's not the case uh but how does that go you go to school what do you do you wake up you take a bus you go there you have uh eight hours of school uh how does it go the first few um hours of the day in the school I think what you've got to understand is is Zimbabwe is a bit of a dichotomy between the rural and urban, and the majority of Zimbabwean population is very rural. So the rural lifestyle that they're exposed to is very different from one that we grew up with, and the rural lifestyle is probably the caricature that uh, most people would have an understanding of, you know, people waking up early in the morning, um, having to do chores before they get to school, young girls might be the ones responsible for sorting out water, et cetera, and helping their mothers cook. And yes, in the rural areas, people tend to walk to school. Um, some do walk long distances going to school. 
Um, when you contrast that with the urban urban life, there's also a dichotomy in urban life in what well, we have the 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 low density suburbs as we call it, and what we have high density suburbs. So your low density suburbs tend to be your more affluent suburbs. So those middle class to to upper class high end houses and your high density tend to be your blue collar working life. Um, people in the in the high density suburbs, as we call them, blue collar workers. The kids who go to school will definitely be catching public transport to get to school. A lot of the schools will be in those areas as well, but some people will cross town and go to different schools. And then the more affluent suburbs, uh, your low density suburbs, people will definitely be going to school by car. I mean, when we grew up, we used to ride to school. Some guys used to walk to school if they they live pretty close by. And the curriculum is. Is pretty much the same across the board. Um, we have a number of different examination boards that uh, people will will be able to subscribe to, and a lot of them are international. Predominantly used to be very British in the system with the Cambridge Examination Board, but now people even do the IB, International Baccalaureate. Um, you have a number of international schools. My my kids go to the French school, so that's Excellent. A, a, a French. Excellent. I approve very good. So uh, that's a uh, a French school. So they they they, they learn in uh, multiple languages, and that follows you know the French system. So my son went in, and he was in très petit section, and you know mm-hmm. uh, my daughter's in moyen section, and so that you have those schools, you have the international schools as well, and but the majority of Zimbabweans will go to. As Zimbabwean school, so the school that Bruce and I went to, uh, St John's, uh, was a was a school in an affluent suburb, and uh, you know we grew up in a in a very very good environment, you know where we had fantastic teachers, great environment, we had milk at break time, you know ten o'clock in the morning, you went out and ran around and played in the fields, very big on sport. Zimbabwe is a very sporty country, so there's lots of organised sport. And as kids, we played uh, a number of different sports. We had clubs as well. I think Bruce and I probably both played chess. There's choirs, there's drama. There's a whole lot of activities at junior school level. And as you progress and go through senior school, those those are added on as well. Um, Bruce and I went to separate senior schools. But uh, at my senior school, you had a range of different activities and sports. I mean, we had shooting guys were members of the shooting club you could be in the choir you could be playing instruments a cappella or playing first team rugby so there was a lot of progression as we grew older uh schools tended to be really focused on academics and sport but a big cultural wave came through in zimbabwe in the mid 90s and there were a lot more activities going on in the in different schools not to say that didn't exist before but they're now put on par there was a time when if you didn't play first team rugby you weren't recognized for your skills and talents but people had the opportunity to express themselves in different ways and uh, so, i think it was a very I'm good sorry. thing uh, when you say if you didn't play rugby you weren't recognized for your talents in rugby or like no was- I'm so, in in, in it, rugby was the epitome traditionally so if you look at most schools and still is to to a large extent the probably one of the most important schools important sports in private schools and to some of your top government schools what i'm saying is that then there was that progression that recognized people who did different things so if your skill was was music 
it was also equally recognized. So it wasn't just a case of a hierarchy that it was rugby and nothing else. So you had a lot of people who now had the opportunity to, to express themselves in playing musical instruments, being in debating, being in Toastmasters, and they would be awarded school colors and awarded for be excelling in that. So you mean there were a few areas that are um, uh, socially more valued, you know, from a, a uh, I don't know, a, academics or just recognized point of view, and and you would do those things, and you would be looked at. the The first image that came to my mind is the one of you know the jocks in american movies where it's like if you're yep. par part of that crowd then you're awesome and if you're not then maybe you're not treated as well by the your fellow <laughs> school friends or things like that is that equivalent um, so that that's how it was a lot mm -hmm. when we grew up i'm sure bruce can share on that and uh, as we progressed through high school there was a, a lot of equalization of that Okay. And that people who weren't as sporty got recognized, which I think is, is a fantastic thing. Mm. I, th I think, uh, sorry, Patrick, I, I think sure. Bongai and, and, and I sort of went, went to senior school during that transition. Um, but there was very much uh, that American um, characterization of American football as to rugby was very, very similar, you know, mm. it's, it's a good one, I think. Okay. So what you're describing here sounds uh, like a pretty good, you know, pretty amazing environment. And I'm curious, you did mention that there is a lot of, you know, there are a lot of differences between the different neighborhoods and the rural areas and the um, urban areas. Uh, what you're describing sounds like a wonderful environment to, to grow up in. How different would it be in other uh, uh, areas? I mean, I guess my question is, how unique and exceptional was that envir environment? Was it really, a, 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 you know, a few schools in the country or did everyone have more or less of a, a, a similar environment to grow up in? Sure. I think if you look at the schools, you've definitely got your private schools, and your private schools tend to be the more well-resourced schools. Mm. And uh, greater parent participation uh, encourages uh, and ensures that the schools are able to offer a wide range of skills. So you'll have parents who will come in and coach and assist and uh, various donations made and equipment. Then there's Then you have what are your... Your government schools, but then there's also top-tier government schools which have good alumni networks which also help and provide support. And then there are government schools that aren't as well-resourced. However, when you look at it from an environment of where you grow up, the ability to play sports, you know, great weather, pretty much 12 months of the year. You know, we have a very short winter, and even then it's not bitingly cold. You've got a lot of activity. You know, kids very much are encouraged to run around and play. There's lots of after-school clubs, um, and you can get very involved in those clubs and activities. And when, when I look at it in terms of country to bring up children, even though we are going through a number of challenges here, you know, I've lived in a few other countries around the world, and I would struggle to find a, a better country to bring up children in anywhere in the world. Bruce? Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd I'd agree. Although I did move away when when we when we have children, but I think um, it, it, it a lot of it depends on being able to find the right work 
um, and also uh, there's a kind of um, mentality, I suppose, in Zimbabwe that you need to be able to have. It's it's a kind of uh, forging ahead, uh, make a plan, do what you can, make your own, you know, sort yourself out. And uh, that was something I never really uh, got to grips with uh, in a major way. Um, I'm quite happy to... Uh, I never liked the fact that um, uh, the, the, the medical system there is very much uh, based on, it's almost an American system, isn't it, uh, Bongai, um, where, where you, you know, you, 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 there's, no, there's no government medical um, coverage. Uh, like in, the NHS, no. No, nothing like that. Um, and also, uh, I think, um, I... Uh, I don't know. It, I've, I've kind of lost the track of the question. I just, I just wanted to go back a bit, Patrick, if, if you don't mind. And we're talking sure. about um, sure. uh, gro- growing up in Zimbabwe, and I think, I think one of the things that I think needs to be stressed that 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 it was like uh, in Zimbabwe, and I think still is, is that when you look at inequalities, and and I work where I work, we 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 actually do in across Scotland, we look at inequalities, um, people in different. Um, uh, deprivation bans. Um, I think in Africa, they're much more con- con- contrasted. Uh, and in Zimbabwe, well, I know in South Africa and Zimbabwe, where I've, where I've lived, it's much more contrasted. You're going to have the well-off are going to have a lot, of, a lot. And those who don't have a lot, um, as Bongai said, you know, the, there are people who will have to go to you know the 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 young the girls in the family will go and get water in the morning uh from from the wells and um sorry just no. that's the second times you guys have referenced the fact that the girls are going to go get water and help the yep. the the women uh cook and things like that i'm curious why and and then sorry it's an interruption but why the girls you know why it, do you feel that you need to mention that the girls will do it what do the boys do are they you know basically that question bongo can probably give more to this but i think there's more of a a, a sort of cultural divide there when you look at uh, the shona and debele and the, the actual um african cultures it's still It's getting better. I don't know, Bonga. You might you might be better to answer this one. I think, well, like you said, it's very traditional, patriarchal. Um, we are old school in our communities, and there's very much a a, a, a big division of labor, division of roles. Um, there is, you know, for fear of sounding sexist, women's work and men's work. And I'm saying that's not my terminology, but that's how things are perceived. In, in in an urban setting, it might not be as as uh, abrupt or as uh, defined as that. Mm. But yeah, stark, exactly. That's a good. But uh, it, it's still relevant. You know, a lot of people will. Women are homemakers. They tend to be. Even if a woman goes to work, you know, there is an expectation that she'll come home and cook for her husband and keep a good house, which is interesting as well because we have a culture which you know. Across the board, even people who live in uh, the high-density suburbs, the less affluent, will have domestic workers. So someone can be living in a non-affluent suburb but will still have a maid. Uh, might not necessarily have a gardener. But that's also, yeah, it's, it's also something very striking 
that uh, we have, which doesn't really apply around not many places in the world. Sub-Saharan Africa is big when it comes to having domestic workers uh, in terms of uh, helpers, gardeners, uh, maids, who cooks as well. Mm. So for the for the for women who are in more affluent areas, they don't have to have that same social burden of having to cook and clean. Whereas um, the lower you are, you will even if you do have domestic help who comes in occasionally, there'll still be an emphasis on women being the the homemaker. So so that's uh, engendered into the children from a very young age. Boys, rural areas will go and herd cattle, will go and work in the fields. The girls will do the domestic work along with with uh, getting water, etc. So, yeah, very patriarchal society that we live in and uh, sort of gender roles are defined at a very early age. Okay, that, that makes sense. Um, so do you mean that they do that, the children do that before going to school in the morning? Most likely, yeah. So um, herding cattle and getting areas, water and all of this before school. Some would, some would, not mm. all. Uh, okay. It's hard to generalize and say that that's what everyone does across the board. Um, but uh, if you look at uh, the kids, the girls would probably almost do that definitely right? when they wake up in the morning. Mm. Um, boys, it would depend on, on on what chores they have. They might come back and do them. Uh, there was a time when it was considered that you know sending girls to school, etc., was also a waste of time or waste of money when you had limited money. But now you know, there's a lot more education. People are really enlightened, and it's it's important. I mean, we look at Zimbabwe; we've got the highest literacy rate in Africa. 92 percent um that that's come about because people recognize the value of education so most so, while uh, they might most girls even in rural areas would go to to school i'm guessing until at least 12 or 13 or even longer yeah. Pri primary education is definitely something that that is almost universal okay um And uh, then, obviously, the, the the constraints when it comes to funding, etc., might might have some level of limitation on how far people go. It was a very big thing in the past, but I think it's got significantly better. And you know, parents realize that you know, education is one of the the the, the best paths out of poverty. You know, so I want to get back to uh, men's jobs and women's jobs. I'm curious to to hear about that a little bit more. But before we go there, uh, maybe a question I should have asked earlier, I just realized. Um, could you tell us, for you, uh, how is Zimbabwe different from the rest of, let's maybe not go to the, to the entire continent of Africa, but maybe the, the rest of sub-Saharan Africa. You mentioned there's a very high literacy rate or how do you, would you guys from Zimbabwe uh, say, you know, describe the differences between you and the, the few uh, other countries? That's an interesting question. Um, if you look at some South Africa, Namibia, Zambia, I think there's a lot of similarities. Obviously, South African economy is more developed and they've got better infrastructure. But in terms of who we are as people, I think we've got a lot of similarity um, between your, 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 your different areas and in terms of even the way the way the, the cities and towns are built up with your high density suburbs or South Africa, they will call them the townships um, and your, your local, the same kind of zoning. Uh, but it happens 
And then what you'll have is also in terms of culture, you know, there is strong black culture and the certain perceptions around it where things like your dowry, you know, Lobola, mm. same name in Zimbabwe, it's in Southern Africa, will have those similar themes. Um, families getting together, the gatherings, the community, etc. Then extending in, even into what I call the blend of black and white culture, um, you know, brides, which you call barbecues, um, or we call them brides, but the barbecues, very similar. That You know, that rugby culture we spoke about, very similar. Uh, I think we probably have more familiarity or similarities with South Africa and Namibia and Zambia to to a certain extent. Um, when you look at some of the other countries in southern sub-Saharan Africa, it's a little bit different. Um, you might see Kenyans as well, the Nyama Choma, also gathering, we all like to gather around meat. Um, and I think it's very interesting as well, here we are talking about rugby, but football is the biggest sport in the country and football is the biggest sport in Africa. So you'll have a lot of people going down to the games and supporting their teams and wearing their colors. So I, I think there's a lot of similarity, but the further north you go in Africa, I think the less and less similarities that we have. Um, so what will start very to, to differentiate? What will be the things that are different if you go further north? I think just think if you think of language. Um, we speak a lot of English <laughs> in this part of the world. Um, English has become the lingua franca. And particularly when you look at Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe, you've got two major, although we've got 16 official languages, you've got three major languages, Shona, English, and Debele. And Does English everyone speak English? Most people do. Mm. Most people do. Can't say every single person, but most people do. And that's the language of instruction at schools. There has been a lot of discussion and debate around whether we need to have languages or we need to have, excuse me, certain subjects being taught in in local languages and local dialects and the need for that, you know, which involves a whole major change to the curriculum. Because like I said, the language of instruction is in Shona. I'm sorry, is English. So people are talking about teaching mathematics in Shona, teaching it, uh, chemistry and physics in, in those languages to say that it gives kids who have those languages, the primary language, the opportunity to excel. So you'll find that the average person in Zimbabwe speaks so, a minimum so, of two languages. Sorry, the, the idea is that the, their primary language would be not English, and English is, as you said, l the lingua franca, franca, so everyone speaks it to understand each other, but it's not necessarily the native language of most people, so you wouldn't, you, it would be interesting to change some of the curriculum to those languages so that they can actually do better. Right? Is that the logic absolutely, behind it? Absolutely. Absolutely. So if you're saying we've got a country that has 92% literacy, you've got the cornerstones and the basics of, of, of developing uh, a community and a, and a society that's educated. But sometimes you might be hindering certain kids because that they, while they speak English, English is not their first language. You know, someone will have to speak, think in one language, then translate back. And I'm sure many non-native English speakers will understand that when you hear a word, you translate into one language, translate it back. And even though the synapses are firing, there is that little delay. <laughs> and sometimes it also results in a, in, in a lack of comprehension. So there has been a push for that, a lot of debate. Um, and right now, you know, there's, 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 there's advocates on both sides. Some people saying it's a waste of time and how do we develop uh, the, 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 la the language 
I'm one of the advocates of, of, of promoting it because every, every, every language is dynamic and you learn things. I mean, you even think about English, you know, pre-internet, you know, we wouldn't have talked about phishing on Bitcoin and, and, uh, <laughs> capture, you know, things like that, which are now just common phrases, you know, in France, you've got the Académie Française, which right. will, you know, curate language and add, uh, language in, in well they'll look at it and say you know we we don't have a we word need like that, that you, French, new or, word or we'll invent exactly, one word yeah exactly yeah. yeah so i think that that that's important yeah it's it's definitely you know something that i can relate to uh i speak a, a few different languages and something that struck me when i first started really learning and really speaking a different language was how it's not just about you know not just about learning the language, but it also brings you when you when you finally are comfortable enough in that language that you don't need to translate in your own head the new language when you're speaking or thinking in that different language, I think it it changes the way you it's hard to explain, but the way you react, the way you uh you are really language. I truly believe this. I'm a different person when I mainly speak French and when I mainly speak Japanese or when I mainly speak English. You know, it, it changes the way you perceive the world and the way you react to the world. So I definitely understand what you're saying when you're um, talking about about that. Um, but so for people listening who only speak one language, I think that's a really interesting uh, thing. Like uh, culturally, it's a wonderful experience to have that richness. And when I say I always listen to, you know, I always watch movies or TV shows in their in their regular, you know, their original language and try to read subtitles. That's part of the reason you lose something when you translate. There's no way around it. So. Anyway, that's a slight digression. <laughs> but um, wow. so there's one thing you referenced earlier, which I want to come back to really quickly uh, for just a second. But you did mention that you have—I um, can't remember how you put it—but mixed, uh, you know, uh, black and white uh, populations. I'm looking at Wikipedia right now, uh, and um, in Zimbabwe specifically, uh, the black African population is the by far the largest majority, uh, 99, over 99%, and 0.2% of white Africans. So since we have Bruce here and you, and you met in school, um, I don't want to delve into caricature, and that's why maybe I didn't ask it initially, but I, I am curious. Um, how, you know, how was it to, to uh, have a, a white friend? Is it, was it a common thing because maybe of your uh, environment and your school? Was it, were there a lot of white people? Was it weird to be friend with, friends with a white person? Just, you know, uh, um, your thoughts on that. I think just having Bruce as a friend is a bit of a weird thing, eh? <laughs> Maybe um, that's because of Bruce himself and not because he's white. Maybe he's weird. But, uh. Well, I, I actually, I, it'll be fun if Bruce kicks off first because, you know, white people are, are a minority in Zimbabwe. So it'll be interesting to look at it from a minority perspective and I'm happy to chip in afterwards, yeah. Um, from minority, well, it's interesting you say that, Bongo, because... I mean, the schools we went to, we were, they were mostly white, though, weren't they? I mean, indeed, 
when, when, huh? when started St. John's in our year yeah. of, of, what was it, 60 odd kids. There are only two black guys in our year. Really? So, yeah. Okay, so you were, <laughs> you managed to be <laughs> the minority in, in Zimbabwe by being black. It's, and, and it was like that through a lot of my um, growing up in Zimbabwe. Mm. It was very much uh, uh, white dominated. You wouldn't, you wouldn't believe it and you wouldn't think it, um, but it was very white dominated. It was only, it's only really recently that the more affluent schools have become, um, you, you know, more black. Uh, and, and obviously it's a good thing. It's, you know, it needs to happen. Um, uh, but I grew up in a very, uh, I wouldn't say, I think, I think protected, um, sheltered. I was, I, I would, I think I was in, I was very much in a cocoon uh, growing up. I didn't realize, um, 99% of the issues going on around me um, because, you know, I, I grew up and most of my friends were white. I had black friends and, you know, uh, there was never, there was never really a question in my head about, about that, but it was always accepted that, you know, the, 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 the maid or, or the, 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 I'm using inverted commas, yeah, help um, was always going to be black. You know, it would have been very strange to have a white maid or a white garden gardener, um, growing up, so, so um, was there, there was a moment when you you realized, you know, you? It, I'll I'll share a a very quick story here, maybe that it can relate to that in a <laughs> weird way. Uh, my mom was born in Egypt, grew up in Lebanon, or you know, part of her childhood, and she has a, a an accent when she speaks French. And I remember I was about eighteen or nineteen, and um, I was speaking with her and she said oh i went to do these administrative things and the the person in front of me uh realized i had an accent and she she asked where i was from blah 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 and i looked at her bewildered and i was like accent what do you mean and and she said well my accent you know i i speak french with an accent i'm like no you don't what what are and it took me Like, it was 18 years of my life that sort of changed in an instant when I realized that my mom had an accent, which I didn't think she did. She was just, you know, my mom, and that's what how she spoke, and it was French, so I didn't, you know, it didn't compute. Did you have a similar moment um, when you realized, um, wait, all the help is black? What What is, you know, what's, there's I, I, something weird here. I don't think, I don't know, it's kind of strange to, to, to think about it, but I don't think there was a moment for me. I think it was a realization, and it was it was only when I moved to, well, I first went to university for a bit in South Africa, but then I moved to London uh, in my early 20s, and mm. I started to look back. And it wasn't, I can't say I put my finger on, a, on an exact moment, but I started to look back and think, hold on a second here, you know, uh, I'd, this word privilege is, is thrown around a lot these days, and I think it can be overused by, by some of the far left. Um, but I think that there is something in that and saying that I had a very privileged upbringing. And, um, and the, the, the fact that my skin color played a lot into it was, you know, had a lot to do with it. Uh, even, even going, Zimbabwe had been independent for what, 20 years. There was still, there's still ingrained, I don't know, Bonga. I don't know if you'd call. Uh, uh, I don't know if you agree with this, but prejudices. I, I don't know if that's a too strong a word or not strong enough. But um, but gr you know, growing up, I, I look back and think, wow, 
um, I used to actually believe this. I used to actually think that this was the way things are. And, um, you know, certain people from certain backgrounds uh, have certain places, uh, to put it bluntly. And, and it's a racist way to think. And, and it's, it's very strange to think that um, and to look back and suddenly realize it. And uh, I've always been viewed as, as almost being overly liberal by my family. Um, and when I started to sort of question my upbringing a bit, it was a bit, um, it was a bit strange, I think, Patrick. It, it's strange to sort of talk about it here, but um, I've, it, it still makes me uncomfortable to this mm. day. And I, I don't think, I don't think there'll be, it, it's not like I'm ashamed because, you know, you, you come from where you come from and you, you learn from your surroundings and where you are. But realizing you grew up in a very much a cocoon, in a, in a bubble where uh, you didn't see uh, and I don't know, Bonga, if you if you saw a lot of what was going on, but you know you didn't you didn't see really see the news of what was going on in the rest of the country and the you know some of the some of the hardships that people had. You know, I got in a car, I got I'd got driven to school every day. Um, I had a I had a wonderful life. I'd play rugby after school, and I'd uh, you know chess club. As Bonga said, I was even I was even in a bridge club in in senior school. You know, we used to play bridge. <laughs> and uh, so you, and, you were know, eighty uh, in in senior school, is what you're saying? Playing bridge. <laughs> yeah, but you well, know, parents, I think my parents were uh, ranked national, ranked uh, internationally in in the late seventies. Very easy. Um, but yeah, so, so that's, that's, it's an interesting, it's, yeah, uh, go ahead. No, I think it's, it's really interesting what you're talking about with privilege and it's kind of, you know, a lot of people will listen to this and think, of course, what are you talking about? You know, you were being driven around all the helpless black and of course you could, you know, it's obvious privilege, but surely these other situations are different. And I think obviously they are, but it's the, the, the char characteristic of privilege that you don't really realize it. And I think when you do, you kind of try and justify it, even when it's smaller types of privilege. So um, it's, a, it's a really interesting uh, frame of reference to put around it. Um, but we'll, we'll move on from, from the topic fairly soon. I just want to ask Bongai if you have anything to add to that, you know, the way you look at it or uh, your experience with this, and then we'll talk about other things. I think one thing you have to acknowledge is that in the time that we grew up, privilege was predominantly race-based. And it generally still is in the fact that You know, white people, while they might be minority in Zimbabwe, tend to be generally more affluent. So if you look at representation, well, there's only about 20, 30,000 odd white people in the country. They are probably more, uh, they've probably got a lot more wealth than if you look at average numbers. So growing up and being the only black guy in my class in grade one, it was, it was, it wasn't a start start startling experience as such it was just sort of fine because that's what i knew you know i went to school with a bunch of white boys and as as we went on more and more there were other black guys that came into class guys of uh, indian pakistani origin it was more when i went to the high school that i <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> the high school that i went to where it was contrasted where there were a lot more black guys and now when you look back at certain things that happened 
at junior school, you do notice that I wouldn't call it overt racism, but there were incidents which make you go, hmm. And, you know, having grown up in a privileged environment, I think, you know, Bruce and I are far from representative of what Zimbabwe is mm. um, as two, two privileged kids. I think the irony, well, not the irony, the reality is Bruce is representative of the average white Zimbabwean, and I'm definitely not representative of the average black Zimbabwean. Right, right. So that, that probably paints the the right kind of picture for you. Um, so, yes, affluence is very very acknowledged thing from an early age because I would get to see how relatives who weren't as affluent and what you do in Zimbabwe from the black communities, we have a rural home, you know, Kumusha, that's the word in Shona or Ekaya in Debele. So there would always be trips to the rural home. And that's when you can also get that contrast, you know, like I said, the majority of our population does live in the rural areas. So you get the, the practical realities that not everyone has running water and cable TV and, uh, and internet. So yeah, privilege and affluence is, is a great reality. But then again, at the same time, you know, we can't make apologies for it. It should be a certain standard, which we want everyone to live to, you know, everyone in the country should have running water. Everyone in the country should have access to, to things like the internet. And now, it obviously wasn't there when we grew up, but certain things should be certain basics. And I think that that's the important thing that we, we need for our country. So, yes, we live in a, in a dichotomous environment. But then again, I don't think we should be making apologies for those who have. What we should be doing is to try to pull up those who don't have. So I... I'm going to come back to the question of the internet, I think, uh, towards the end of the show, because I mainly cover technology, and that's fascinating to me. Um, but the the uh, I wanted to ask, how many people uh, live in those rural areas? You know, what percentage of the population does that represent? Um, and also... Is there a, um, a will or a trend of rural people trying to move to the cities to make a better, a better life for themselves? Yeah, if you look at it statistically, there's probably about 70% of our population lives in the rural areas. Mm. And even within the rural areas, the communities will, will differ. In some rural areas, there are, are what we call growth points, which are your 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 more built up areas, you know, that do have your electricity and running water. And there's some very poor, you know, um, rural areas where people have to walk as far as 10 kilometers for fresh water, etc. And that, that's probably a big so irony. And we're very the, the well girls, shielded from this. When you were saying the girls need to get the water, uh, is that what you're talking about? Like in the morning, they'll walk 10 kilometers yeah. to, to and back that, to get an the extreme. water in the morning. That's, sure. Yeah, that's an extreme. But it's an extreme that exists. Mm. So I don't want to portray that to be the norm, that everyone's waking up first thing in the morning at the crack of dawn to walk 10 kilometers to get fresh water. And also what you'll find is that they won't be doing that on a daily basis. So obviously it might be a couple of times a week and then they'll have their own storage facilities for that water. But I just I, I, I said that just to illustrate the fact that you do have those extreme cases Um, even within the rural areas. Some people will have boreholes and pumps and they'll have water that's running, you know. So it, there's, 
there exist those 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 different different elements within the rural areas. So rural population of Zimbabwe is about seventy percent. There was in the past a very strong urban migration, um, people moving to to the urban areas. But even within our urban areas, there is a, a lot of what I prefer to <laughs> term underemployment. Um, and the reason I call it underemployment rather than unemployment is because we've we've informalized a lot of aspects of the economy. So you'll have a person who will be a plumber and he runs around doing private jobs for individuals as opposed to having a plumbing company that's registered and pays all its taxes, etc. So more cash in hand jobs. And he might not be as busy as he needs to be, but he has a form of employment. He's self-employed. So... A lot of jobs have been lost in the formal economy, but there's a big boom in the informal economy. So that migration that used to happen where people said, okay, I'm going into town, I'm going to find a job, doesn't necessarily apply. So you've got, uh, there's a lot less uh, rural to urban migration going on right now. Mm. So because people know that there isn't enough work for everyone in the in the cities, right? Exactly. Or if you are going to go, go into a city, you might, you're going to have to work for yourself. Mm. But then there are a lot of people are looking at working for themselves as well. So it's it's not a guarantee to success in any shape, way, form or kind. So talking about the cities for a little bit, could you describe, because I still don't have a really clear picture of what a city, a big city in Zimbabwe would be like. You know, do you have, I mean, obviously you have electricity and water and internet, so the infrastructure is there, but... Does everyone have a car? Do you have, uh, you know, uh, public transportation? Uh, is there 35, I mean, an hour and a half uh, uh, commute every day for everyone if they want to go to work? Is there big companies? Like, how paint us a picture of what a big city is in Zimbabwe. Bruce, do you want to go ahead and maybe contrast with where you live? Uh, where, 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 as in Zimbabwe or um, uh, yeah, Zimbabwe, yeah. Where, where I live in where where I live in Scotland is very very um, rural for 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 the first for Scotland. So it's it's a very different contrast. But um, I think in in Zimbabwe the, uh, the 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 public transport's very much for the the let's say blue collar workers. I think uh, Bonga, if, you, if if that might be the best way to put it. Definitely. Um, You, you'd very going just going back to the color thing. You'd very rarely find a white person on a public transport. Um, almost everyone uh, owns a car uh, in the cities. If you work, if you live, if you live in Harare, uh, which I never, I never lived in Bulawayo, Bonga. I don't know how different that was, even though I was born there. Um, you will own a car. Most families will have one person, one car. Um, people working in the city, uh, unless. Um, You know those that commute in on the minibuses. Uh, uh, what what do they call them? Emergency taxis. Do they still call them that? Well, uh, commuter omnibuses now. Commuter yeah. on omnibuses. That was it. It was emergency taxis. They had the old Peugeot. Was it the five hundred fours back in the day? Wasn't it? Yeah, nice. um, <clears throat> um, and uh, uh, the roads are used a lot. They used a, ver a lot, a lot. And one, even in the two years I was back in Zimbabwe. <laughs> Sorry? Oh, you had a little bit of feedback. Don't worry. Okay. Even even if the... Um, uh, even in the two... I guess I went back in 2011, and I noticed in the two years I was back, the roads got more and more congested in that short time. Um, 
traffic jams became a real thing. Uh, but in saying that, my commute to work, I used to work in, in the industrial areas um, for, for my dad's company for a while. And uh, that was about a 25-minute, 30-minute drive into work from um, one of the suburbs, which was Borrowdale, into Granite Side, um, which I think would have been a fair commute. That was sort of what most people did during the, you know, during the day. Um, the cities themselves, I don't really have much of an insight into that, Bongai. I don't really, you know, the the the, the actual workings of how people run. Uh, how people get in there were there were lots of commuter omnibuses coming in people paying a fair amount of money in transport that was quite unreliable um and so i think go ahead Bongo. yeah i think when you look when you look at it um from a from a from a from a an urban perspective you know, if you look at Harare, you know we're we're talking about sub-Saharan Africa. You know, Harare is the capital traveled. for for people who don't know. Harare, yes, sorry, it is the capital of Zimbabwe. You know, when you contrast it with some of the cities, like I say, okay, if you compare it with the Joburg, there's no comparison. Um, you know, Joburg has a lot of highly developed uh, uh, public transport, like Bruce is talking about. They've got the Rea Via, they've got the How Train, um, but a lot of people drive in Joburg which is pretty similar to what happens here. You know, more affluent people drive, but also you've seen it cascading down as more and more people buy secondhand. You know, the secondhand Japanese car market is huge into Africa. So if someone can get a car for four or $5,000, I'm talking about US dollars, and they'll have a car landed here. And so you're finding a lot of middle-class people who in our time rely, well, when we were growing up, relied on, on public transport are now big commuters themselves. So that's definitely added to the congestion when it comes to to traveling and commuting. But it's nothing like you know the the traffic that you're going to see in Johannesburg, or you're going to see even in Lusaka or in Nairobi with their with their notorious traffic jams. And, and that's so, a sign the the fact that they can afford these cars. That's also you know part of the picture painting I was talking about. It means that a, a four or five thousand uh, dollars investment is achievable for many people and it means that the the fact they can do that if they couldn't before uh means the the population is getting uh, uh richer and more well off i'm guessing it, it's not like the investment yeah. of a life lifetime to get a a car so no definitely not upward mobility is definitely something that's happening more and more you see it in, even in terms of the type of houses that people are building you know and a person who's on a civil servant salary and civil services, the majority of the, the working population in Zimbabwe can afford a car, can afford to build a house, you know, will be able to get access to, 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 to lending, etc., which is a good thing. Um, that's what you need. You need to have that upward mobility inside. You need to create a, a bigger, a bigger middle class. You know, I think that's, that's, that's an essential element. People who have enough money to, to be able to send the kids to the best schools that they can afford and focus on education, et cetera. I think that's a crucial aspect that that's, that's needed and is necessary in this country. Mm. Um, we're seeing it more and more and, uh, it's, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Yes. While the traffic jams might've increased, it's, it's still a good <laughs> thing that uh, people have cars. Yeah. So, um, the, if we, we talk about the, 
I did want to ask that question, so I'm going to get back to it. Uh, the women's job and men's job, uh, again, in the, with the idea of trying to paint a picture of what every day is like in uh, in maybe the capital or where, you know, uh, uh, the big cities, what would be considered a, man, a man's job and a woman's job in those uh, urban areas? Well, I mean, in the urban areas, like I said, a lot of people have domestic help. So, you know, back in the day, it might have been the man's job to take care of the garden, look after it, and the woman to clean and cook. But if people have got domestic help, whether you've got a maid, it might be the job of the wife to make sure that the maid is doing the work that's necessary. <laughs> you know, she will be the one who goes shopping. And likewise, the man of the house makes sure that the gardener is doing the necessary and doing the needful. But I don't think it's 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 too far different from, you know, what, what happens in, in, in homes all around the world. That, you know, a man must take responsibility for his family. And if you're in your house, you know, doing the little DIY jobs that need to get done, making sure that bulbs are replaced, you know, take your wife's car out and make sure that uh, it's, 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 it's serviced. It's, and good everything. Work. Exactly. I think those those are those are just the traditional roles that 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 we're all comfortable with. Mm. I I don't think you have a lot of the stereotypical old school attitudes still uh, prevailing. There are probably pockets where it does exist, but you know, particularly in your in your urban environment you're not really worried about about things like that. It's not a case of, this is woman's work, I'm not going to do it. I mean, mm. you know, I grew up with a father that's very traditional, but, you know, he'd cook dinner for us on the weekends. You know, I had no problem with wearing and washing dishes, etc. You know, I do the same thing for my kids. So, I, I, while, I, while, I, while I acknowledge that we, we, we live in a, in a patriarchal society, you know, we aren't, we aren't cavemen. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, what about, like, uh, uh, employment? Are there, do women often work? Is there, uh, you know, does it extend to the, to, to this uh, state where women are very accepted in the workplace or how does it work in that uh, respect? Absolutely. I think you find that a lot of women work and people need to work. I mean, you know, growing up, you know, we can, across the board, you can see many families were, were built up on, both families working and it's a crucial you know I, i when i grew up my mother went to work every day she got had an opportunity to retire earlier my father worked so both 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 members of the family worked i've got sisters they all work um married and i'm not married and and working is important it's a it's a it's a key aspect of of getting money for the for for the family coming through and i don't think there's there's a, we live in a society where people frown upon women going to work you know going women going to work is encouraged uh it was just international women's day recently and you you see a lot of publicity and you see a lot of coverage of it going on in the press in fact the 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 radio station that i used to work for went through to one of the women's prisons and you know carried out various programs and activities and they have made donations there's a lot going on in and around that um in the past when it's international women's day certain radio stations would only have women broadcasting mm. you know parliamentarians would be going out and having particular messages and activities in and around what's going on with regards to women's day so women working and being accepted in the work environment is it's 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 just natural and it's very much part of of our society 
Right. So it's it, it seems like Women's Day, to take that specific example, was just as big a deal uh, in Zimbabwe as it was in many other parts of the of the world, in the Western world, um, it seems. Without a doubt. Mm. Who knows? It might have even been bigger. You know, there's a, there's a lot of noise being made about it. Um, a lot of those activities and days and the the ones that highlight social causes are very big on our calendar. Um, you've got a lot of local organizations, a lot of non-governmental organizations, not-for-profit not profit organizations, plus various arms of UN, you know, who will be very actively involved in doing those things. And it's important that they, they work on doing those things. So it's key and important for, for us to have those organizations that, that you know, are, are emphasizing things, whether it comes to children like UNICEF and, and, uh, and WHO, etc. So, yeah, very active. Zimbabwe. Actually, that brings me to another question, um, which might be uh, uh, a little bit difficult to answer. But before we move on to the question about uh, tech and the internet, which I definitely want to uh, ask you about, um, how would you... I don't even know how to ask the question, but what do you think of uh, the Western world's views on your country and maybe even the continent? But, you know, it seems to me that we're sometimes a little bit condescending or maybe, you know, we're trying to to help a lot of uh, good intentions. And maybe you look at this and think, guys, that's very nice, but that's really not what we need? Or is there anything there that you can talk about? Or is that something that I'm thinking about because I'm from the Western world? I think what you what okay, there's two, two, two aspects that, 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 that immediately come to mind. The first is perception. And generally, if you're talking to an audience outside of Africa. So it's not even just your, your Western audience. It could be people in the Middle East, it could be people in Asia, people in Australasia. The perception of Africa is very much a stereotypical perception. You know, I went to school in uh, university in London and there were the odd questions. How did you get here? And I'm like, on a plane, you know, how do most people get here? <laughs> or the, 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 the one where your English is so good. I'm saying, yeah, I'm a quick learner. You know, it was a 10 hour flight. I, I read lots of books and listened to audio tapes. And so you have those stereotypes or do you have wild animals in your back garden and stuff like that? Some born out of I, ignorance, I some born out of pallets. I almost asked that myself, <laughs> if I'm being honest. I was like, so do you have like cheetahs running around in the in the background? Or No, so, I mean, I I live in a, in a very urban dwelling. And while a lot of our houses might have a big gardens and swimming pools and tennis courts, etc., the only animals you're really going to find are people's dogs and cats and whatever right, other right. animals people might keep, you know. But not <laughs> not wildlife, sure. you know. That very much we don't we don't really have zoos. We have national parks. We have game parks, etc. So people can you know you can actively see that within where I live in Harare. You know, if I drive 30 minutes in either direction, I can go to a, a national game park or not a full on big game park, but, you know, where you can go and view animals or go on a, on a mini safari. Mm. So we do have, have a lot of animals and wildlife and we have a lot of greenery and beautiful nature. In fact, that that's one aspect which does fit the stereotype in terms of beautiful country, large savannas, great plains, 
um, beautiful trees, mountains, rivers, the Victoria Falls. You know, Will Smith was recently bungee jumping off there. So we do have that. But then I think there's aspects when I'm talking about big cities and us having gone to to schools which uh, compete, you know, where you have students who go from our schools and they go to Oxford and they go to, to your Ivy League schools around the world and they can compete because that's the nature of the educational background that we've had. So I understand how people might not be able to fathom it because a lot of the, the projection media-wise, etc., is famine and war in Africa. And yeah, that is a that is a real story, but it's 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 not the single story. Africa is a multifaceted. Zimbabwe, you know, has so many different aspects, you know, positive, negative, contradictions, dichotomies that you can't get your head around every aspect completely until you actually spend some time and invest some time in getting to know it. Then when it comes to your second aspect in terms of the need, you know, there there are real needs in this country. And I've spoken about kids having to walk distances. The other day I went to a charity event which was raising money for for pads for kids in rural areas because they're girls of school going age who can't go to school for a certain number of days because they don't have the necessary uh, accessories for, for when they're going through menstruation. So it might seem just like an obvious thing when you walk into your local supermarket, your Tesco, your Carrefour, or, or whatever it might be, and be able to pick up a bag of pads. But for someone living in a rural environment, that's a significant cost. That's money that they might not have. So this campaign was about reusable pads and, you know, they, they get donated to the kids. So those are real needs. You know, they're real needs around education and health, um, HIV prevalence. Those are real needs. There's real needs on, on making sure that our doctors have sufficient funding. And there's a lot of money that does come in through Global Fund, USAID, uh, you know, PEPFAR, which was launched by George Bush, that initiative in terms of of of, of cutting down the prevalence of, of HIV AIDS in sub-Saharan Africa. Those those programs are real and they're active and they actually do make an impact. So it's good that you have the, the support that comes through. And we do have support that comes through from, you know, various multi multi-table donor institutions that come in and support. Um, sometimes I, I criticize in the sense that I think that it creates a moral hazard where our government might be in a position where they think that they don't have to allocate certain resources to things because they're going to get the donor support. But that's just a personal opinion. When I When I look at it from a bigger perspective, I'd rather have that support and help so those marginalized and vulnerable communities in our society can get the assistance that they need and deserve. So you mean overall, uh, it's always hard to generalize. And every time I ask these kinds of questions, I'm, you know, reminded of the fact that different people have different opinions. But overall, you would say that people think uh, the help of the West in many areas is welcome and is, isn't looked at as something super condescending beyond what you described when you landed in Oxford and, and people were asking, oh, how did you get here? Yeah, I think, I think it's important how, how it gets channeled. 
And one of the things, the, the buzzword, you know, I hate using buzzwords, but it's real, is sustainability. So if you look at any initiative that's, that's meant to help people, it has to be sustainable. You know, I'm involved in a, in a, in a, in a conservation trust, which is focused around angling. And one of the initiatives that people were talking about is to say a lot of people who are in that community fish because they need the food, the protein. Some people fish so they can sell, so they can get money. But the question was to say, okay, how do you ensure that people don't overfish? How do you ensure that people actually just get enough and that's necessary? And then people were talking about doing donations for food. And there was a big outcry to say, well, actually, you know, you create a moral hazard and that you start donating food and the people expect it and you know budgets get cut you might not necessarily have the ongoing funding so that was just an example to say if an initiative is there to make an impact it must be sustainable it mm-hmm. can't be dependent on continuous donor support so even if you look at it in terms of the modern world you know there's a lot more emphasis on on social activities that actually empower communities for the long run and, you know, there's actual businesses that are actually commercializing social social enterprise. Social enterprise is, is a business venture that looks at impacting communities in a positive manner and sustainable manner. So help is very welcome and very necessary. But if it's going to be help that makes a continuous impact, let it be sustainable. And sustainability for me is, is, is the key. Isn't there a, a, a saying which is something like "Give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. Give a man, learn, teach a man to fish, you feed him forever." Something like that. Maybe it's not with Absolutely. fish. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but that 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 is true. That is yeah. true. You know, if it's a, if it's a one-off event like a flood, etc. Yes, you can direct resources for that specific activity. But sure, disaster you know, relief things like that. But yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um. All right, let's uh, finally get to that, uh, I, I was going to say trivial topic of technology, but certainly it isn't trivial. I mean, infrastructure, and uh, it's it's essential because it enables so much uh, else to function. Um, so technology, I, my initial impression would be that uh, your situation is that With smartphones, uh, the the country started to get connected a lot more, and and it's the primary way people access uh, the internet, meaning smartphones or you know feature phones. Was would that be accurate, or do does everyone have a computer anyway, and has had for you know 20 years? So you don't really care about smartphones. No phones, phones by far. Mm. Uh, are the largest. If you look at the mobile penetration rate in Zimbabwe, I think it's about ninety-five percent. So when you say when you say mobile, phones. you're not talking about only smartphones, right? No, no, no I'm talking about across the phone. So mm. across, sorry, across the board, in terms of your your feature phones and your smartphones. So with your smartphone smartphone penetration. I think it would probably be in your 50% region. but And that translates into what you see in terms of your internet penetration. Internet penetration in Zimbabwe is 50%. I think it's gone down from 51%. So it's gone down one percentage point. So 50% is not, not bad. Um, it's, not, it's not good, but it's not bad either. Um, so what you're finding is people with feature phones have still been able to access things like buy new. Um, still be able to get things through that. I'm, I'm or, sorry, I don't know what Banu is. 
Albania is a, a way of people being able to access internet internet uh, services using using feature funds. Okay. So it's, so it's what basically kind of servi- which services would they have access, access to? Hmm. Low data access, I see. What kind of yes. services? Like, so, is it Facebook, well, Facebook or, Twitter, Google, Wikipedia? Um, so buy new. Um, it's 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 a, it's, a, it's very interesting. I, I haven't actually used it myself, but uh, I know quite a few people who use it. Um, you know, and about I remember reading an article the other day that saying about three hundred fifty thousand Zimbabweans still use it. You know, and it's one of the cheapest ways of of staying informed. Um, it's got a lot of little applications, etc., and it basically allows people to have access to all these things in a way that uh, because it compresses compresses data, right? You know, right. you don't have and your images and text, so it's cheaper and it works on a lot of the old phones. So basically, if someone's got an old Symbian or Android device, they can still access that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, when you look at uh, smartphones, without a doubt, smartphones are, are are essential, and that's how a lot of people access internet. You've got a lot of internet on on telephones. We've got cheap internet that's come about through the mobile services, where people get an all-in package, which will give you, you know, a lot of data, your calls, um, and then you also have various packages. You can even get a Facebook package. You can get a, a WhatsApp bundle. We call them bundles, which will give you access. What you can choose that? to get access for a day or for a week or for a month. And that allows a lot of people the ability to 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 be online at a limited cost. When someone knows that they just want to be able to, to access WhatsApp, and then when they want to access data, they'll be able to buy a bundle that's just relates. It can be a daily bundle, you know, which is cheaper, or they'll get their weekly bundle. So even if someone's got a dollar in their pocket, they can have access to the internet. Then there so, are a number of, of sorry, what what just to to specify when you mentioned a WhatsApp package or a Facebook package, you mean you'll pay a certain amount relatively cheap and you'll be able to access Facebook for an amount of time uh, unlimited. And but only Facebook. Is that yes. what you mean? So yes, so your Facebook bundle will give you only Facebook. So all the sites that are 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 optimized for viewing within Facebook. So like when you do click on a link, it'll allow you to stay within Facebook and access that data. Whereas, you know, there's some links where you click out and they'll say Facebook will now access externally unless Mm. you have the data on your phone or data bundles or airtime, you won't be able to access that. When it comes to WhatsApp, the WhatsApp bundle is a WhatsApp bundle. You can even get a Twitter bundle, which gives you access to Twitter only. So it's for um, specific so, services. How, how much does it cost, uh, roughly? Do you know? Um, you know, you get you can get uh, a monthly Facebook or WhatsApp bundle that will probably cost you about six dollars. Um, you get weekly bundles that'll be like two dollars or three dollars, and you can get a daily bundle even. Um, so. Okay. And, yeah, and so Facebook is kind of, it's kind of, it becomes like this, uh, for Americans, like an AOL kind of service where you only have access to Facebook, but then you can access the outside sites, but you're going to use some of your, use up some of your data in that case, but it's separated. Yes, that, that's it. Exactly. Exactly that. And so now in the past you had, you had a lot of people who were, 
were using WhatsApp and using WhatsApp bundles. They were even sending sending documents to each other instead of emailing it. You know, so you could get people would get access to the information that was necessary. I knew some kids who would change the the end of a file and make it uh, an audio or an MP3 file, save that file, and then just change it back to an XA file. <laughs> yeah, you know, right. It's because you could send it via WhatsApp. So now what happened is they've 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 introduced uh, fair usage policies on uh, <laughs> on some of these uh, bundles. <laughs> I see. And and so I'm guessing that uh this kickstarted a, a big part of the economy. Um how is that the case? How big is it? Is it like I'm guessing essential now that people use smartphones for everything? Yeah, or well, I, particularly in urban yeah, in your urban environment, you know, a lot of people do have cell phones or do have smartphones. So a lot of people are going to be online all the time accessing accessing information um and and for example whatsapp it's not just a social tool yeah and i look at my business whatsapp is probably the biggest form of communication that we have going on in our business um with our various stores all the managers will send their their daily turnover information by whatsapp uh so we get that information and see how the different stores have done overnight so I'll wake up in the morning or if I'm still up when the shop closes I'll have an idea I'll say oh that shop did well today that shop did well it gives a snapshot gives indications of if there are any problems overs and unders it's a way to broadcast to 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 staff to give staff information if there's changes on rosters that they need to be updated on you know you just have a WhatsApp group you can have 256 members in there um you know when you have group activities, you know, WhatsApp's there. So I use, from a personal perspective, I use WhatsApp social. It's where I stay in touch with alumni all around the world from my from my school, uh, where I use it for business, and, uh, yeah, stay in touch with family. So it's it's very much uh, a, a used tool in Zoom. You'll find a, across the board, you'll have old people who will be on WhatsApp, and they know that that's where they can stay in touch with with their family. Mm. So, so, so you don't use it, it email very, for yes. for any of this. You, email is kind of it seems like it's uh, it's an old person. Oh no! Oh, email is definitely used. Um, and I I am probably a borderline luddite in that I I I, t I tend not to use email on my phone. I will have I have I have multiple email accounts, but I don't have my business email account on my phone. Uh, I I like to be able to run away from my mail or <laughs> you know have the weekend where I can can block off, and so but, but I will you still have, have maybe WhatsApp, a Gmail account. You still have WhatsApp on the phone, so and that's a, and, one and, of the many ways. I mean, one of the primary ways apparently you do business. So <laughs> it's it's not intrusive though. Mm. Um, I find you know when you've got an email and it's always popping up. You got a mail. You got a mail. You got a mail. I can leave my phone on WhatsApp and 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 that's fine. Whereas with email. It's important for me to deal with the messages, and okay. the WhatsApp messages. If they're coming through business, it's a quick thing to deal with. You know, emails. You know, I have to sit down, and give it some time, and consider. And yeah, there is a time, and I sit down, and I do a lot of email, and I'm probably an exception. In truth, I find a lot of people now actually live off their phones. Everything is all integrated. You know, even my business partners will be like, oh, "I've just sent you an email." I'm like, "Well, I, I don't have my tablet. I don't have my my laptop." They look at me like, "On your phone?" I'm like, "No, actually, I don't have it on my phone <laughs> because it's 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 just a personal choice." But I know a lot of people will do it. You know, you can even, like I said, a local plumber, 
he'll come over and he'll fix something and he'll send me the invoice from his phone. Mm. So tech is, is, is used. Tech is embraced. And I think what happens as well, because we are where we are in the world, that uh, we have a lot of early adoption of things. And we also have, because, you, for example, with our cell phone networks, we ended up building, you know, we got LTE and 4G came on quickly because we skipped a lot of stages. Sure. Because when, you're, when, when the network's, aren't as developed you tend to jump to the next stage yeah, and they the go out and get the best and, yeah. best tech exactly exactly and so what about the, the so you have lte uh, everywhere but the data is still relatively expensive i'm guessing you can't you don't have unlimited i mean even the us they don't have an unlimited um but you don't have unlimited data yet you still have to be careful how much you use it It seems. Yeah, it, it's expensive. I mean, uh, I'm I'm at home right now, talking to you on my phone on Skype using, you know, I don't have fiber. I've got an MPLS link, which is slightly better than fiber, and I and I got it because I was also an early adopter. But in my whole neighborhood, everyone is fiber. You know, ADSL has been phased out, but it's cost. Oh, so, it's expensive. So, but you, your neighborhood maybe is a little bit uh, uh, more, uh, you know. Well, uh, uh, not provided. Well, <laughs> serviced than other parts of the country, I'm guessing. But is fiber a common thing, uh, at least in the capital? Fibers in in Harare, fiber is pervasive. Wow. Um, there was one stage where you had uh, a situation where you on Monday you've got one group trenching, then on Wednesday there's another group trenching, and on Friday is another group trenching. So there's been a big, big case for infrastructure sharing. Because you know it's it's a silly race to have every mm. everyone just laying their own fiber all over the all over the country, or putting up towers all over the country. So you know the information ministry, which, which has uh, control over the ICT sector, was busy saying that look, we need to look at at sharing sharing the infrastructure because you know does it make sense for us to go and set up three three cell phone towers in the same area <laughs> right right so yes fibers 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 big um adsl still available very few people on adsl um cell phone and, and primarily but just caps? to give you an indication uh, yes a lot of them have caps but mm. if you want uncapped it's expensive so i'll give right. you an example my, my i have a 20 meg which you know is average speed or probably slow by european standards which is fast by our standards um un and it's uncapped it costs me 100 150 dollars a month wow okay so that's that's a significant amount of money it's expensive and you know if you look at the reasons why it's expensive we're a landlocked country you know connecting to seacom and all the other cables you know means you actually have to physically trench to another country Um, so it's hundreds of kilometers. Then, of course, the, the, the early investors are trying to recoup the costs of their investment. So we've seen prices gradually going down. But if we want to see the big impact, I think the big impact will come from the mobile space in terms of pricing. And you've seen a lot of pricing wars. So we've got three major uh, mobile networks in the country and uh, a lot of a lot of the battle has been in and around the the pricing of uh data and getting the all-in plans where they just basically combine your your plans and that's what's proved to be very attractive to people mm. 
So what about uh, commerce? I think we're going to uh, get to the end of our uh, conversation fairly soon. But I do want to ask, you know, like payments and commerce. And is there, I guess, two questions. First of all, how does payment happen online? Uh, is it like bank transfers or do you have other services? Uh, I know there are specific phone services for uh, uh, banking in Africa. And then uh, do you have like online commerce being developed in the country as well? Yeah, so if you look at it, um, traditionally, everyone wanted to do a transaction, go into the bank, fill in a form. And so in our banking sector, we have what's called the real-time gross settlement network, RTGS. So if you want to send a transfer from one person to another, basically you had to go into the bank, fill in a form. There was a cutoff time, whether it's 11.30 or whatever time, for you to do the transfer. That was the traditional way of sending money back and forth to individuals. Then there was disruption. And disruption came about particularly through the mobile space. So your mobile networks, you know, Mpesa is one well-known example in Kenya. Mm. Um, so all the mobile networks in Zimbabwe have mobile banking. So they have mobile wallets. So you can then now transfer money from one person to another via the phone. And that person could be registered or not registered. And if the person wasn't registered, basically they would just have to go to an agent and they could redeem their money. Uh, then how they do they, like they show the document on their phone or there's a tracking number and how do they exactly. identify themselves though? You have a tracking number. You go to the agent and say, I've, you know, I would like to redeem this amount of money. Um, I'd like to cash out, and this is the reference I've got, and you just show them the ID. So in Zimbabwe, everyone has a national ID. Okay, From the so, day you're born, you're assigned an, an ID number. Mm. So the person so, would, would say, I, uh, on my phone, I'm transferring that amount of money to that person with that ID number. and uh, We well, don't even need you. to have the ID number, just the, the person's cell phone number. Oh, okay. And that so then translates I'm sending into... money to your number and then they'll be able to cash out. Okay. And then the ecosystem built up where they developed a whole number of merchants. So I, you could send me money. Patrick, you send me $100. And then instead of having to cash out, I can go to the supermarket and I can actually use that money in my mobile wallet and pay the supermarket via my phone. Mm. So, so that ecosystem developed to the point where it's, trying to keep the money in the system where people don't have to cash out. That's one example. Then the banks also came to the party with regards to how people did it. So you can send money with mobile banking where you actually log into your bank account. And we've got a system called ZipIt. So basically I can send money from my cell phone to any bank account around the country. And it actually, I think I've done it from one of my own accounts to another. I think the quickest time was 30 seconds between clicking and getting an SMS confirmation that money's gone from one account to another. Right. So that's called ZipIt. Um, then there's app, mobile banking via your apps. A lot of the banks have mobile apps. Then you're, of course, internet banking. And for me, that's the cornerstone of my business. I do all my transfers via, via internet banking. So log into my accounts, transfer money around. I will have all my suppliers preloaded, all my employees preloaded as well. I will go in and I can just do batches and I can put in 50, 60 payments, put the various amounts, put the references, click send, get a batch. I'll get a proof of payment 
and uh, the money goes through to the to the respective people that I'm paying. So does that also work want, via uh, cell phone, or do you have to do that on the computer? I'm thinking about the UI. How does it? You know, do you actually click oh, everything? Oh, yeah. Well, it's it's hard to do it on 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 cell phone right. um, because just of the size of the screen. Exactly. Um, when you look at some of the different banks, some of it I've got pure mobile banking, pure internet banking as it is web based. Some actually have Java applications, so you can't. It's difficult to run the Java app on on your phone or next to near impossible. Mm-hmm. And they'll actually even tell you the screen size not supported. So I will do it on my laptop or I'll do it on my on my tablet. But in terms of actually m- mobile banking or or app banking, I can do that from my cell phone. Mm-hmm. No problems okay. at all. And so I, it seems like this makes it kind of mandatory to have at least a, a, a dumb phone or a feature phone. Um, what happens when you don't have one? How do you, you know, I, I most people do have one, I suppose, but. Yeah, I, I think that's why you see mobile penetration is so high at 95% mm-hmm. because cell phones have become you know, an extension of an individual. It's not just that thing that allows you to pick up and make a call. You know, it allows you to send money to someone, send documents to someone, email a person. You know, the other day I wanted to go to lunch. I just went on Facebook, found the found the, the restaurant, clicked the call button and calling through my reservation. You know, and I just thought about that for a minute. And I said, you know, a few years ago, I'd have had to go and pick up the physical telephone directory, <laughs> thumb through it, find the number, you know, go to the landline, dial the number and make the booking. But, you know, I could have even sent them a message to the reservation via Facebook. Mm. So you've now got a lot of businesses that have adopted the technology, that have adopted Facebook, are on Twitter, are on Instagram. If I look at my own businesses, you know, I, I've stopped advertising in the physical media, in the, in the, you know, the print media. I will go and see we've got an activity that's going on. I'll go into Facebook and I'll spend $20 to boost it or $50 to boost the event. And mm. the impact I get is, is phenomenal. You we, know, it's interesting because we... we act, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. I, w- I was going to say it's the same here. It's it's very similar. Uh, you know, we had probably more computers before, but the this idea that the, the phone has become an extension of your life, really, is is really the same here. And... and I'm guessing for you guys, it enabled things that weren't possible at all before, um, but it it does to the, to some extent here as well. Um, I'm I'm curious: is there online uh, online commerce developing? Because I had a, a conversation with a friend from Thailand uh, a while back, and uh, he told me that online commerce is definitely booming uh in thailand but of course these are different contexts so i'm wondering if there is you know even the infrastructure for delivery or for i I don't know but is there i guess the question is is uh the are the online uh capabilities to connect physical entities or does it also evolve into online only activities yeah online commerce and truth is very limited there are a number of, of, of companies that will, you know, 
let you log in and do your grocery shopping online, etc. Um, some people will do your online delivery if you buy goods online, but it is not. It is not a big, big aspect of of anything at all. You know, you're not going to have your major retails like Amazon where people are buying things online. You know, I'm a huge fan. I buy a lot of stuff on Amazon online, but not in the Zimbabwean context. We just don't have that here. So, so wait, wait, sorry, let in me, that way it doesn't. Really let, let me interrupt. You say you buy a lot of things on Amazon online. Uh, you mean from yes. Amazon from where and you get them delivered to Zimbabwe like it takes a week instead of two days, but is that? Yeah, exactly. So I have the stuff shipped or I say I've got my, my sister lives in, in the US. If she's coming, I'll say, oh, listen, I'm going to buy a few things on Amazon, get it shipped to her and she'll bring it across. Oh, but okay. So you don't get it shipped be... to Zimbabwe directly? No, I do sometimes. Okay. I do. And Amazon does ship here. But then there are some some sites, you know, the non-Amazon sites that are on, on non-Amazon retailers that are on Amazon who will tell you, sorry, we do not ship mm. that to Zimbabwe. So I'll have to get someone to bring it across. But yeah, it, it in terms of that, that happening here, e-commerce is very limited. We are still traditional brick and mortar. Someone will actually go onto a Facebook page or onto a website of a of a store and see what what goods and services are available, then jump in their car and drive across and buy. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. All right. I guess uh, that will. Sorry, just, oh, just, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry, Patrick. Just a very interesting caveat to what you're saying there about using mobile phones and. Uh, um, uh, it, just to put it into context, living in rural Scotland here, working for a council, I've, I only just got my uh, work smartphone yesterday. Uh, so um, <laughs> that, that shows you, you know, that it, I think, I think uh, one of the things I noticed in Zimbabwe when I was back there is, is they're a, they're a lot more ahead in a lot of ways. Uh, than some of the rest of the world, and it's like you say, early adoption is is uh, is something in Africa that I think will push. You know, missing out a lot of the lot of the big bulky steps before um, seem to help a lot. But um, you know, that sort of thing, like using messages instead of emails, I've been pushing for that at work for ages. But we're still using emails, and we're finding that emailing all the time is actually not useful you know we want to get whatsapp i want to get whatsapp i want to get skype working in in, in the work environment and uh, and there's a reluctance to do that which is very very strange um when you know you look at how well it's being used in zimbabwe and how well people are using phones and using smart technology so um i found, i was just chuckling away in the background when you were talking about that and i, I thought it was quite interesting <laughs> you know i i use email still and i have a preference for email you might have noticed in our communication in preparing the show um I, I think it's just an old old school thing but i feel like email is archivable like i can i can it's gonna stay there and if i need something i'm gonna go find it uh it, whereas even you know skype or direct messages on twitter or all of those uh, you know uh, uh just the messaging services feel less real like not less real but less uh uh i don't know they, they 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 it's harder for me i have everything in one place in email and that's easy but if i have to use whatsapp and twitter and facebook and and skype and 
I think that's why I do it like that. But I definitely am in that boat of, but why can't we use the old thing that I've been using for, you know, 20 years and that I'm uncomfortable getting away from? So I understand that. Well, you know, the most real you can get is is put it on a, you know, get a piece of paper and write it out. And, you know. <laughs> I knew you were going to go there. Um, oh, one last question, actually. Uh, it's kind of like the Big Mac index. You know, how much is a Big Mac in the world tells you something about the purchasing power of that population? Um, yeah. I'm guessing, well, maybe I could ask you about McDonald's, actually, but uh, I'm guessing it's mostly Android phones. I'm wondering how many uh, iPhones people uh, have. Yeah, iPhone iPhone's expensive. Um, so Android by far is dominant in the market and there's actually homegrown brands. Oh, really? So you have, yeah. So you actually have, there's a brand called GTEL where the guys have actually got Android technology built up their own phones and they, they do mass market and they actually sell these phones to, to a lot of civil servants and students, etc. And they um, manufacture in China, brand, I'm guessing, but yeah, probably probably is in China. Um, but they've actually brought a whole range of, of 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 they've got across the board. They've actually now started working in the in the premium space, and so that that that's been a good good initiative. Um, so so feature phone or an or a smartphone is is not that expensive. I mean, you can get a smartphone for fifty dollars, thirty dollars, forty dollars. You know, your basic entry-level phones. Wow. Um, so that top end is reserved for the top end. So if you're looking at your Samsung Galaxy, your S7s, etc., or your iPhone sixes, that that market is very small. Mm. How, how much small. does a does an iPhone cost? A brand new iPhone iPhone 6 probably cost you $1,100, $1,200. Okay. Um, Your Samsung Galaxy is probably $800, $900. Mm. And how much for a Big Mac? We don't have McDonald's in Zimbabwe. Well, Um, there you go. That's it. Over. I'm never going to Zimbabwe. (laughs) (laughs) They got KFC, though, you know. Oh. Yeah. KFC is a recent entrant. So... (laughs) We've, 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 in the fast food space, we've tended to have our own home brands. Um, and if you look at one of our fast food companies, Inscore, you know, they're a billion dollar business and they're, they've spread their wings all the way into East and West Africa. So it, uh, it proves that, you know, sometimes homegrown does work. So if you're looking at your average burger, your average burger, mm, what do I say? $2.50, I suppose. Oh, that's very similar to the prices we have here. Maybe a little bit. Uh, yeah, and when I talk dollars, we actually use U.S. dollars, just so so your listeners are aware. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. uh, but if if you like burgers, uh, Patrick, you have to visit Zimbabwe one day. It's the best the best meat in the world. Um, best meat in the world, definitely. Uh, I, I heard a rumor that uh, Zimbabwe is one of the few countries that the Argentinian embassy doesn't bring their own meat in. Oh. <laughs> All right. Well, you've convinced me. I'm back on on, uh, on the Zimbabwe uh, uh, boat. I'll go there one day. 
All right. Thank well, uh, thank you very much to both of you. That was the fascinating conversation. Um, is there any place online that uh, if listeners want to, you know, get more from you guys, do you have any presence online or or not? Maybe Bonga is that uh, you, you mentioned your uh, radio shows were available on uh, SoundCloud. Yeah, on SoundCloud, my name is Bongai, B-O-N-G-A-I, and Zamchia, Z-A-M-C-H-I-Y-A. Um, see some of my previous radio work there. And if they're interested to know what, what's going on in the Zimbabwean hospitality space, they can have a look at one of my businesses called Pariah State. So just on Facebook, it's Facebook Pariah State. That's uh, our casual dining and uh, resto, resto bars, as we call them. And we call it the best bar in Africa. <laughs> I, I, can, right. I can second that nomination from best bar in Africa. We went there over when we were there in November. Cool. Well, you might be a little bit biased, but uh, I'll take your word for it anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, what about you, Bruce? Uh, do you have any online presence you want to promote? I've, I'm, I've, I've, I'm on Facebook, but I'm also on Twitter. I think Bruce Woodward three. Oh. Uh, on Twitter, and um, otherwise, I'm just a, I'm just a regular, normal person. I'm I'm a bit of a uh, a, a Blizzard fanboy, um, as as um, we all. <laughs> um, so I've you know there, there's all that, but uh, you know what? Just uh, just follow the Phileas Club and Pixels, and and you know I've got to say thank you to Patrick for what you're doing because I think. Uh, this episode but i think there's uh, some of the stuff you've stun- done in the past with challenging people's views on on you know and even your own views is is very good and, and i appreciate it and i and i hope it carries on for a long time oh thank you very much i i really appreciate that and you're kind of uh making me blush a little bit <laughs> thanks bruce um so well i i guess if you want to uh support the show if you like bruce think that uh this show is is does some good things you can go to uh, patreon.com slash the phileas club and join the number of patrons that are financially supporting the show i would very much appreciate it that's uh, an incredible encouragement for for me and for um the things i try to achieve with the show um if you don't have uh money to to waste on my uh on my Endeavor, you can always go to iTunes or any other uh, desk, uh, podcast catalog and uh, leave us a review with a few stars. Uh, Purdue from Sweden said, excellent podcast with five stars, a good way of getting to know more about the world. Thanks for doing this, Patrick. Thank you very much, uh, Purdue. I'm going to pronounce it like that. Um, and um, And I hope that in this episode, you did get a little bit of perspective, some interesting uh, facts and figures. And I really want, uh, again, to thank uh, Bongai and Bruce for being on the show. It was uh, super interesting for me, at least. So I guess that is uh, uh, something we've we've achieved no matter what. And uh, we'll be back in uh, towards the end of the month with a regular episode. It will be interesting again with things happening around the world. I can't wait to tell you what's been happening in the French election. And I'm sure we'll have other things to talk about as well. Again, thank you very much for listening. Thanks, Bruce. Bruce and thanks Bongai and uh, we'll talk to you soon bye cheers
Oh, hey, bonus question, Bongai. Uh, what do you guys think of Trump? I think there's there's been mixed reviews of Trump. Um, from a personal perspective, I think it's one of the best things that uh, has happened for a global political perspective. I think it shows that democracy is alive, strong, and well. It also shows the fact that people are unhappy with the current political environment and that when they choose to make a, a decision or a choice, I mean, you see that manifested in Brexit, albeit some people will say they didn't completely comprehend what Brexit was. But I think it's democracy in action. I think it's something that should be acknowledged and praised. And while Donald Trump might not necessarily be the best poster boy for this mini rebellion, I think it's, it's a very good thing. Uh, I look forward to lots and lots of fun with Trump being president. Um, from a Zimbabwean perspective, you've seen a lot of reaction from our local politicians with the hope and belief that it might result in better relations between Zimbabwe and the USA. I'm not sure that that will necessarily happen because as the same as Barack Obama was president of the United States, Donald Trump is very inward focused and inward looking. So I don't think he has a lot of time and consideration for us in uh, little Zimbabwe. But the takeaway is definitely uh, that democracy is strong and alive and that people recognize and realize that they have a voice. And when they band together around a particular cause or individual, they can prevail. I think that's a very, very different view, Bongai, that, you know, I think a lot of people will think that's, uh, you know, he's, he's he just look from where I'm sitting in the sort of Western world. He looks like a big buffoon. You know, it doesn't really. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I I understand that concern, and uh, in many ways, when you when you watch his press conferences and the and the grandiose displays when he's signing executive orders, you 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 get that feeling. But what I'm encouraged by is that you know you look at the institution, the democratic institutions. Trump will issue a travel decree, and the courts will turn around and say that's ultra vires the constitution or whatever laws applying then is applicable. That's that's the true test, and that's the nature of a democratic process in play. You've got the separation of the institutions. You've got the robustness in place. You've got a situation where government is held to account. And when they do craft legislation or make executive orders, they've got to ensure that it's legal. It might not necessarily be something that we all agree with, but it's legal. And ultimately, you've got to acknowledge the fact that he was elected and he won an election. And he is representing people across America, whether or not they chose to elect him or not.